Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello and welcome to Pitchside with Toby Reynolds, a Sports Gazette podcast, where each week we take a deep dive into a new sporting topic with a new guest. I'm your host, Toby, and this week I'll be joined by Jonathan Beardmore to discuss salary caps within the English Premiership. Jonathan is an independent financial advisor, but is also the host of the Egg Chasers podcast, a weekly light-hearted rugby podcast. What started out as a bit of fun has now grown into one of the world's most popular sports podcasts. He now also collaborates with various media outlets such as Five Live and BT Sport to share his expertise and enthusiasm for the game. Throughout this episode, we'll be looking at both financial and competition sides of the salary cap, and with Saracens breaking it a few years ago, and now many clubs having gone bust, the big question is, is it really working? So originally the salary caps came into play in the late 90s when Richmond and London Scottish both went bust. Um, they originally sort of brought in to try and help the, the clubs who had just turned professional stay financially stable. Jonathan, that's the sort of main goal of them was the financial side. Obviously, over the last couple of years, it hasn't really seemed to work and hasn't continued to work with three clubs going bust in the Premiership and Jersey Reds most recently in the Championship. Do you think that in the last sort of 20 years that clubs in the Premiership have lost sight of the main reasons behind it and, and the financial benefits from the salary cap? That's an interesting question. And I'd be tempted to say you've drawn causation from correlation there. Because I don't see the collapse of those clubs as being a result of the salary cap. Now, when we're talking about Wasps, Worcester, Jersey and London Irish, I think the blame there can be squarely at the feet of CVC. And not CVC themselves, but the people that enabled the CVC deal. Because what that deal has effectively meant, or what is what has allowed owners to do, is stay in the game for a tiny bit longer than they otherwise would have when they still couldn't afford it and also cuts their central revenues. So in terms of sustainability, I think the CVC deal has a lot more to answer for because not only has it done that with ownership, allowing those owners who can't afford to stay in the exchange a bit longer, it also acts as a barrier to new ownership. So back in the day, someone like Wasps with their fairly wealthy following, you know, being down from London, would easily find a new consortium or a new bunch of business people willing to waste their children's inheritance on rugby, but not anymore. So back to your question about about the salary cap. I mean, you could say it failed because even now, 
people might say, well, it's too high in order for clubs to be to be sustainable. I don't think it's quite that simple. I think that the reason the clubs went under was for different reasons. And the salary cap has had some impact. So it does make clubs sustainable on a micro level, but where we start to see problems is on the macro level. Does it make the league not as competitive in Europe? Uh, does it make the league not as attractive as the French league? Does it prevent top-end talent coming to the Premiership? Answer to all those questions is yes, probably. But then that's a question of how high do you raise the cap? So there's a lot of owners in the Premiership now who are looking to raise the cap substantially for that exact reason. But when they raise the cap, I think they're well aware that the only place that money is going to come from is their pocket. So it's a bit more of a uh, complex question. I think the cap, as it is now, has never been more rigorously enforced. So that's quite an important point. And broadly speaking, I think it does contribute to rugby. It contributes in two main ways. I think enforced competition means that the actual games, although they might not be as high a standard or more entertaining, I think it puts real focus on the quality of coaching. On that there, you mentioned that the salary cap is being more rigorously looked at sort of from a club perspective to make sure clubs like Saracens, for example, don't go over it and don't try and find ways around it. Uh, on your guys' podcast a few years ago on the Egg Chasers, you were sort of uh, chatting about Saracens and and obviously the ways they managed to get around the salary cap by sort of buying players' um, houses or or, mm. um, or sort of helping with investment image rights with Mara Toje. A lot of it was sort of what you guys talked about was the fact that they kind of all thought it was legal but were hiding it from the Premiership and from the salary cap investigators. Yeah. Do you do you think that actually because they knew that they would gain a competitive advantage from it, they wanted to try and keep it from other clubs? I think with the Saracens, they were found to be guilty of breaches. I thought their lawyers handled it absolutely appallingly. They tried to handle it along the framework of, say, UK law, when actually you need to be handling it within the confines of salary cap law. Um, and although they were guilty and although there were malfeasance, I do think it's a reasonable argument to say that if you're working in a, in a salary cap regime, and there are ways to gain a competitive advantage, which you believe are within the laws, you should try that. And that is a proprietary way to operate your cap. So from that point of view, I don't have... I'm not as harsh on Saracens as other people may be. In addition to that, we hear a lot in rugby, and this is kind of tangential, but nevertheless, we hear a lot from people in rugby that we need to support players transitioning away from the game. And if you look at everything that Saracens did, I think you can make a real good argument they were the gold standard in doing that. And the last one was the Marrow deal. I mean, the Marrow deal was valued at 800000 by one person and then substantially lower by another person. It depends which valuation you take. But I think if we looked at Marrow's image rights right now, today, he probably got underpaid. But at the time, you just didn't know. Should that sort of deal be allowed? I mean, it's Tough, isn't it? Because it was a connect. It was to Nigel Ray, who was a connected party. But theoretically, I didn't see anything particularly wrong with that. And the important part is Saracens were caught out. They weren't adhering to the salary cap, and I think the penalty was probably just. Um, but from Saracens' point of view, I think what they tried to do was understandable. So justice has been served. I think. Um, yeah, I, I think we can all, all move past that one. From a competitive point of view, obviously. Many of the clubs will have been disappointed at the time that that Saracens had broken these rules and then went on to win 
a, a large proportion of the premierships that season. They didn't actually top the league that often. However, they they won sort of in the postseason in in the sort of semi-finals and, and finals days. Um, and arguably that's almost where their benefit came was they had sort of the highest quality players um who were able to to draw that out in the big moments. But from a sort of European competitive point of view, the English Premiership haven't really been able to compete as well as, as France have. Um, when you look at the sort of finalists in the in Champions Cup over the last, um, well, since it started in 1996, about almost 50% of the finalists have, have been French. They basically have one every year as a French team. And then the other sort of 25%, yeah. uh, sort of the 50% split about half and half with England and Ireland, the English slightly more competitive. Do you think that the English clubs are being drawn back from a competitive level? Saracens obviously managed to compete over that time, um, but but partly only because they they managed to get in the better players by arguably breaking the salary cap. Yeah, it's a good, really good question, isn't it? And also, should Saracens be allowed to employ players that only play in Europe, you know, and circumvent the Premiership completely? I think there's a good argument for that. Um, yeah, so the Premiership, because of the salary cap, has this situation where effectively you have to decide what you are leaving out of your squad. Now, I think... All teams do this to a certain extent and every team will prioritise the thing that they want to be good at. Classic example is Northampton. Northampton clearly prioritise skills, handling, all that sort of soft stuff at the expense of maybe of their set piece and certainly of their defence, which can at times be woeful. But if they're winning games, does it matter? You know, you're looking at what makes the boat go faster, in the words of Chris Boyd. Now, with the French, I think they probably do do that. But the thing that they prioritise is just raw power. And this is where the difference comes in, because to get those very rare humans who are the Will Skeltons, who are the Weenie Antonios or whoever it may be, um, then you need to pay a premium. And you can afford to leave out an awful lot of stuff because size really does matter. I think that's what the French have done. They have prioritised going after the rare body types, which are incredibly expensive. And maybe that is at the expense of some quality of coaching or some quality of game planning. But I think that gap is slowly coming down. But inevitably, if you've got a dearth of talent, it does make sense that you might not focus that much on coaching because you can be a, a, a talent-led team. I think that's what the French have done. Do you bring back to coaching again there? Do you think that that's in some ways more important and that, I don't actually know. It's coaching within the salary cap, or it's it's outside. I assume it's outside. Yeah. And do you think there? Do you think therefore the English have the better coaches, and and that's actually part of the reason why they still are competing in in Europe as much as they they often are. I would never say they have better coaches because I don't think that's. I think that does the French coaches a disservice. And you know, look at Leinster's coaching setup. They're they're a phenomenal b- bunch of individuals, despite how often they don't get over that final hurdle. So I wouldn't say they're better, but I think the incentives align so that premiership clubs will focus more on coaching. And ultimately, if you do have a collection of the best players in the world and you're winning games, you might not need to focus as much on certain things as you otherwise would do. You can be a bit more relaxed. You might not have to coach them within an inch of their lives. Whereas if you look at this, the premiership teams now, the most frequently paid salary is somewhere between forty-five to £50,000. £50, the reason for that is because that individual will probably fit outside of the salary cap, providing they're under 23 and providing that they're homegrown. So you can have all you can have a lot of these players 
but they're going to need coaching. They're going to need structures. They're going to uh, need development. So there has to be more of an emphasis in the Premiership on coaching because the sort of players that you're working with, they simply need more development. Whereas, you know, in the French squads, once you've got a guy who could come through, you play a squad position, first team for the Premiership or an international or someone like that, they probably just need less assistance. With that kind of thing as well, obviously Saracens had a very good coaching staff as, as well as a great sort of strength and depth with, the, with their player pool. Obviously that was one of the yeah. reasons they were so dominant in England and in Europe. Do you think that because their dominance almost was so strong that their punishment followed in behind it and, and that actually if they hadn't been as dominant and had broken the salary cap, they almost might have gotten away with it slightly more than, than they did? Yeah, I do think there's an element with Saracens of bitterness or jealousy. Um, the reason I say that is because you're absolutely right. They did do everything fantastically. And I think it's so easy just to say, well, they did that because they had all of these players and they circumvented the salary cap. I, I'm not sure what their overall salary cap breach was now um, in hindsight. But I do know this. A lot of the lads that they bought through and a lot of the highest paid players now are all homegrown. I also know they've got a hell of a lot of lads from the championship, which they had to spot and develop. I know that going forward, if you look at the team sheet, which they will submit, or they did submit, sorry, for the past week, you can see a load of homegrown talent. And they're very, very good at what they do. I think to say that Saracens only won competitions because it was definitely part part of it. It was definitely multifactorial. But to say that it was purely that would be wrong-headed. And one of the dangers about this whole uh, Saracens incident is that clubs don't take a step back and try and learn from what Saracens did aside from the salary cap breach because you know let me give you an example I mean how many clubs study the laws so closely that had come up with that is it the scorpion where you sort of all bind onto the ruck to charge down a kick I mean that's just genius that's reading the laws and that's understanding the game so there's a lot more to Saracens than simply uh, circumventing the cap Do you think that they have sort of managed to get back to the top as quickly as they did because they have such a great structure within the club as well. Like obviously, they've had to had to sell a few players and, yeah. and get back under the cap, but a lot of their main squad has stayed the same and, and they've actually strengthened in some ways as well. Well, there's one of two theories here. So the first theory is, yes, they're great at coaching, um, they're great at doing all their bits and pieces and they've got back to the top because they're simply such a good organisation. There is another side to this and I have some sympathy to people that say it and again, it's contrary to what I just said. But maybe what we're seeing is the residual effects of the breaches. So you've got a lot of lads who might be playing for underneath their value now because they've already received their value. You know, um, you've got Mario, you've got Owen, who are the two the two marquee players. Well, the marquee spot went from two to one, I think, about three years ago now. So they're obviously coming to the end of those deals. I bet there's a lot of lads there who've got a lot of loyalty to Saracens because they've set them up in different ways. Again, not in accordance to the salary cap, but they have a lot of loyalty to that club. Um, there again, you look at the way that lads like Theo Dan talk about Saracens, and it's true to say that all the Saracens lads really do love playing for Saracens. So I think two things can be true at once. I think what we're seeing is the residual effect of salary cap breaches, and this is a this is a game that has to come to an end eventually because you can see the senior guys in Saracens starting to age. Billy, for instance, is certainly not the Billy he was three years ago. Um, but also combined with an excellent, excellent coaching setup, an excellent um, 
institutional rugby intellect. Do you think that if they hadn't broken the salary cap, obviously it's all speculation, but and they maybe didn't have one or two of their key players who who maybe they helped pay for by getting around the side of the salary cap, that they would have been as dominant? Or, or do you think that actually their structure and and they still might have brought in these kind of players and it was almost bonuses that the way they were paying them um, that allowed them the, the sort of dominance? I have to say, I don't think they would, would have been as dominant, though. No. I think they would have won stuff. Could they have won Europe without it? I don't know. The answer is nobody really knows. I do know this, though. At the same time, without any um, without circumventing the salary cap at all, Exeter Chiefs did marvellously well. And so many parallels between those two clubs, like how they handled themselves, their reliance on homegrown players, very smartly selecting the players that they bring in uh, from external sources. So I imagine that the competition with Exeter, even though it was red hot at the time, would probably just have intensified. So would they? No, they, they wouldn't have been been as dominant, but they still would have been an exceptional organisation. Obviously, English teams have been able to compete within Europe a little bit, but but not to the same extent of the French. Do you think that any sort of simple change to the salary cap without just raising it massively would would allow that kind of side? And obviously, Saracens did did compete in Europe, but without the sort of the same restrictions of the salary cap. Would there be a sort of simple? Uh, resolution do you think or, or would it just with the competition within England itself just increase oh, sorry the competition itself would decrease significantly yeah so the all the obvious answer is just to raise the salary cap that's just simply not an option is it when you've got clubs like Newcastle who I consider to be freeloaders in the whole operation you can't do that because well, I mean Newcastle are not comp- competitive anyway and then other clubs are start to fall by the wayside I'm not sure if Gloucester would have the finances to continue. Or, I mean, there's a few others, actually. There is one idea which was floated to me by ownership, and that was to have five marquee players, but only to be able to play them two at a time in the Premiership, leaving you with your big squad for Europe. And although it's out there, and it cost a lot of money to have a lot of your playing assets sidelined for the majority of the time, that might work. I think that might be something which we could look at. But again, it's a horrendously expensive thing to do for a handful of games. And what would happen if you were knocked out in the group stage? You'd have five very highly paid um, marquee players with nothing to do or very little to do. So I'm not sure if I agree with that approach, but it's certainly one thing that the owners could do. I've always been a fan of having separate players for Europe, which again, I guess is the, I guess is the same principle, but excluding them from the salary cap in the premiership. How many of the clubs do you think would sort of feasibly be able to to do that? Because obviously it would sort of split it in two almost as to some of the bigger clubs who are, who are able to to afford that. But it wouldn't necessarily actually leave the sort of smaller clubs like Newcastle, as you mentioned, um, who have less money sort of too far off in, in within the premiership itself. The answer in a lot of the clubs is the owners. So who are the owners that are willing to fund this? I think Simon Orange probably would. I think Lan- uh, Steve Lansdowne probably could. I think um, Bath would be okay. Saracens would probably be okay. The ones you'd, you'd have questions about would be Harlequins, Leicester Tigers, Northampton Saints, even Exeter Chiefs. The clubs that try and run most like a business would be the ones which were most affected. Uh, Exeter Chiefs and Leicester Tigers have got really nice, and, and Northampton Saints, to be fair, have got really 
comprehensive match day experiences. Uh, a lot of their revenue is is generated from match day. So you know, it'd be those sort of clubs, uh, Gloucester too, it'd be those sort of clubs which would be falling behind because the owners just could not put enough of their money in. And in addition to that, it's a very dangerous game because if we circle back to the CVC deal, when, once these owners have had enough and they leave, I don't think there are going to be other owners to step into their shoes because why would you? Every penny that an owner spends in order to boost the premiership and the competitiveness of the teams will ultimately be reflected in the next TV deal or the next lot of com- of of commercial rights which are centrally distributed, of which CBC get, get, get a third. Effectively, the owners find themselves in a situation now that they're spending for the love of it because every pound that they spend, a good proportion of it, if it is successful in growing the game, will go to CBC for no return. Circling sort of back back to, to your point of having five marquee players, with sort of those the three who are sat on the sideline during the the premiership, do you think that that would affect their their performance as players? And and do you think that many would accept being a marquee player if they were just sort of they were told that you're you're sort of almost like our fifth or fourth choice, therefore you're probably never going to play in the premiership, and therefore half of the games or, or more than half of the games throughout the season you probably won't be involved with. I think the jump at it. The injury risk in rugby now is so great that being paid a lot of money not to play rugby is awesome. And then you know look at say Alfie Barbary. He's a great example. It's quite feasible. Well I think last year it, it might have happened. He plays a single game for Bath, he gets injured, we don't see him for the rest of the year. So it's perfectly feasible that these guys do just play one game and we don't see him for the rest of the rest of the year anyway. I think that this will very much depend on how you distribute those marquee spots. So Saracens, let's go back to them. They're a good example. They've got two England players as uh, in, in, in the marquee spots. Traditionally, I think that's a terrible idea because England players would, lo- would miss games over Six Nations uh, and over Autumn Internationals and various training camps to be with England. And you need to spend your money wisely in order to win the Premiership those more key spots are very valuable. So you might want to say, okay, we'll have two England players and we'll have two other guys who are not England players that can contribute continuously, maybe ex-internationals, ex-All Blacks, ex-Springboks, someone who's done with their international career, but it's still a phenomenal player, and then one other. And that way you get to rotate them a bit more. So when the England boys are away doing whatever they're doing, then your next set of more key guys can step up. And I think that's how I would look at it. And so it probably would affect the competition within within the, the league then, which would be, I guess it's a, it's a different kind of ball game where, whether some clubs are, are able and willing to spend it. Yes, absolutely. And there's also a further question. Is it worth spending it? So if you're, if the majority of your squad are on £50,000, what does it do to your squad dynamic? If you've got five guys, three of which hardly ever play, and they're all on Charles Peartown then, 987000 or or whatever he's on, or whatever he was on a year, I don't see that being healthy for the club or the dynamic. Um, I don't even see it being healthy in terms of the socialising. I mean, one of the things which puts a lot of financial pressure on players is, and I know this from being an IFA who deals with rugby players, is they always spend up to the wealthiest guy in the bar. So if you've got five guys who are on ridiculous money, it actually is not a healthy environment for the rest of them because they don't have the same problems. They can't identify um, with each other in the same way. There, there are all sorts of hidden metrics with this which aren't considered by clubs when they're chasing titles. 
on on that sort of that point there, the the competition side of the Premiership. Um, in my in my dissertation, I sort of looked into all of this and found that actually the salary cap had quite a huge effect on on bringing down competition um, to to a much more competitive level. I looked at sort of two factors. I looked at the average match margin, so the sort of how how big were the the defeats basically, and, and they significantly dropped from the sort of late 90s till sort of just before COVID when I finished my research. So then looked at the competition within the leagues themselves, which also dropped massively as well. Do you mean competition increased or it dropped? It got more competitive, yeah, it got more yeah, competitive, yeah, yeah. Uh, which, is, which is what you'd expect, I guess. Yeah. But do you think that's actually been the, the biggest benefit of the salary cap? And obviously when it originally was brought in, it was financial, as we said earlier, but the competition side and the way the salary cap is set up is definitely benefits competition. That is 100% correct, yeah. 100% correct. Right. The amount of weekends that we've sat down to do egg chases, looked at the scores, and there's over 60 points. It was like 26, 34, or something ridiculous. I think, yeah, this is a really... So, points are not the problem in the Premiership. Points are, are fairly free-flowing. Most years, there's a hell of a scrap for that fourth position. Although, not not last year, weirdly enough. But, yeah, I can... Completely agree with that. I, I think that the salary cap has brought down the overall standard of the league, but probably brought up the standard of the individual game. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that's uh, almost undeniable. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Do you think then, just sort of generally, what what would you what would be your perspective on the salary cap? Is there much more that they can change? And and what what would you suggest for them maybe to to improve the salary cap if if there is anything? Yeah. So. Let's just take the principle that the salary cap is not just a financial measure to stop clubs going bankrupt, because if that's all it is, I think it's failed. But let's look at it as another way, which is to make the game more entertaining and to coin a Mark Evans phrase, enforced competition. If that's what it's for, then there are a lot of extra changes. And one of the changes I really like is a minimum salary. So the minimum salary would be somewhere like 80 grand. And the reason I like that is because it's going to make teams think about how they construct their squads more. And it's going to stop people like Newcastle freeloading off the back of all the other clubs. So if you had to spend a minimum of 80 grand, I think you would have a lot more talent spread across all, all of the clubs. The other thing I think might be a good idea is the England money. So clubs get, I think, and you, you'll need to check this, but I think, a maximum of £400,000 in England credits, right? So that's money you can spend in... Sorry, there's credits and there's cash. I've got, 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 got it wrong. Now, the England cash 
should be spread equally among all the clubs. So there's no point in hoarding England players. You may as well distribute them across the league. And again, that's really good if you are a kid up in Newcastle and you want to see high-quality rugby. It's nice to see an England player there. I think that would be really important. So the the minimum salary to me, and that should be nice, that should be reasonably high. I think 80 to 90 grand would, would be fine. You can have players who play beneath that level, but if they are playing beneath that level, they can be openly poached by anyone else. So to be a first-team player, you need to be paid 80k. And I'd have limits on how many other players they can have in their matchday squad who are paid less than that. And therefore, you couldn't have Newcastle filling their squad with kids. Do you not think in some ways that the way Newcastle are doing it helps develop youth and, and that by sort of focusing on younger players and and, then, and the coaching side of things, as you've mentioned, maybe allows them to to find a different sort of USP and, and find a different way about going about things? It does, actually. And the test case I'd use for this would be Leicester Tigers. Leicester Tigers went through a phase with Steve Borthwick where they wanted to find out what do they have in their academy, how good are these lads, let's see how they go. And what they did is they had these perverse teams because relegation had disappeared. And it was just full of kids. And the problem is when you play kids with kids, you don't know who's any good because they're not playing the right structures. They're not playing in a way where they can perform at their best. So if you get a talented kid and you put him in your first team, and let's just say a hooker, and you put him between two first team props, he's going to have a very different outcome to his game than the hooker who's put between two kids and goes up against Saracens. So I don't think you give them a chance to shine. And my biggest criticism of Steve Borthwick and that Leicester regime when they were finding out who is good, who isn't. And by the way, it did uncover some absolutely brilliant players. George Martin, Chasm, uh, Kelly, Stewart. They all came from, from that system. But a lot of guys lost their careers. And I don't think they got a fair shot because of that. In Newcastle, if they're geared up to do only that, maybe the outcomes will be slightly different. But I don't see it. I mean, I don't see how you develop a player when they're on the end of a... 50-point beating. So if I look at the Newcastle uh, squad at the moment, there are a few guys in there which I think have got potential. Um, Guy Pepper would be one of them. But I bet you any money Guy Pepper goes to a good club at the end of this season, the end of last season. Now, Trevor Davidson, gone. George McGuigan, gone. So every time they get a player, they go. So you don't really have any stability there. You don't have any way to showcase the players. The coaching might be very good. From what I hear, Alex Codling is a really smart bloke. It's just not. It's just not enough. You need a mix of players, a mix of um, high-end, ex-internationals, internationals, squad players, and then you mix the kids in. Uh, kids in after that, because otherwise they're just not going to develop. I don't see. You don't know what good is in rugby until you see it firsthand. And if you're training day in day out with just a peer group who are roughly the same standard as you, I don't think that you improve. And and if you had the minimum wage, how would that allow teams like Newcastle to have? more experienced players, would would that just be because other clubs wouldn't be able to pay them 50k, uh, like five players, 50k, they have to play four of them or three of them, 70, 80k instead, is that? Yeah, well, if you look at the size of the squads, I mean, I looked at the the eligible squads for Europe this week, and I, I seem to think some of them were in the 70s, so 70, 63, 65, something like that. They were very, very high numbers. These are squads which are just eligible uh, these are just players that are eligible, not that will play. But they should be shrunk. You know, uh, Steve Diamond used to operate a team, and he used to say it was 15 plus another 15 plus another two two to three, depending on what he needs in his first team. 
and supplementing them with kids. With that model, yeah, you could do. And there's, you know, there's going to be more players to go around. And also, if you're if you have to spend the minimum salary, you probably wouldn't spend it on a kid. You, you know, you have to go out and find someone who's worth that min, worth that minimum minimum salary, or maybe you end up retaining someone that you would have lost. I'm sure, George will going to stay in ATK, but there are other lads that, that, that might up like um, Will Hayden Wood. And that's the guy that has just gone to Exeter. Although, did he get to Wasps first? But the point remains, um, it would just make sure that the minimum standard of player on that field would probably be higher than what it is now. And I guess it would then, therefore, also filter down as well into the championship where where certain where some clubs aren't sort of able to, or they they have the squad, squad to get promoted, say, but but aren't backing themselves to to stay up. I mean, um, sort of Ealing in particular are very vocal about not the ability of not being able to get promoted. Obviously, it's through the capacity rule um, and they haven't got a stadium big enough, but maybe they'd have more confidence in, in staying in the top division if that were the case. What what are your thoughts on on the capacity rule and and the fact that a club like Ealing have to have a 10,000-seater stadium when the likes of Newcastle and Sale only have 5,000 people who turn up on average every week? It does sound perverse on the face of it, doesn't it? That you have to have 10,000 people to... Sorry, 10,000 capacity to seat 5,000. So I don't disagree with the headline. But I think the evidence is fairly well formed on this, which is if you build your facility first and foremost, people will come. And investment in infrastructure in rugby is really important. Now, not so important it should override the game. And look at Worcester Warriors and Wasps. They had really good infrastructure. But in the end, I think their infrastructure was so good that the clubs became valuable for things other than rugby. And this is a real danger. No one was really interested in Worcester. Colin Goldring was not interested in Worcester. He's interested in the car park. He's interested in the future development opportunities. And so you can end up investing in a rugby club and building all of this infrastructure around it to support the rugby operation. And the only part of your organisation which is not profitable then is the rugby. So anyone coming in would just remove it. So it's a difficult one because I do truly think that you have to build great facilities to attract fans. But on the other hand, you do incentivize people to come in and take those assets for other reasons, uh, a la Wasps or um, Worcester. So, yeah, I I think there needs to be a middle way, uh, with Ealing in particular, saying, OK, well, you can only get 5,000, but show me your plans for... 20,000 in the future. I mean, Bath have been struggling with their stadium development for two decades now. So, I don't know. The answer is, I don't know. Do, do you think that maybe allowing them into the Premiership first and allowing them a base to sort of almost prove that they can stay up there would help? Because, I mean, looking back at London Welsh, who have, have since gone bust and are now in the third or fourth tier of English rugby, um, they, they obviously were renting from Oxford, I think, for a bit and using football stadiums um, and it meant that they would come up for a year get relegated then come straight back up for a year and get relegated and, and actually that was almost more of a problem was because they were having to try and fluctuate between being a championship club and having championship infrastructure to a premiership club and renting premier, premiership infrastructure do you think that maybe say Ealing you have to have a 10,000 seat stadium or plans and planning permission after three years of being in the Premiership, and once they've almost sustained themselves? It's not even a club question, is it? I mean, London Welsh would have been a Premiership club forever and a day if they were owned by Steve Lansdowne. 
you know so it's it's an ownership question once again it comes down to being you know comes down to ownership and the premiership and rugby in general need to decide like how are they going to navigate this do they want to get a bunch of sustainable high spending clubs with good ownership and good infrastructure and invite teams as and when the competition is ready to expand or do they want to have the traditional relegation promotion so relegation promotion is very good to keep uneven leagues interesting but we don't have an uneven league we have one terrible team in newcastle and we have nine competitive teams elsewhere so actually the the systems that they're putting in to the premiership now are I mean, by hook or by crook they are working to make a competitive league across the entire thing so we don't really need relegation promotion because we don't need relegation promotion um I think Ealing would have to demonstrate to the Premiership that they are a viable club. They need to team up with somebody else because we've already learned that you can't have an uneven numbered league. And the other club that was that they were teaming up with would also have to demonstrate that they were a viable proposition for for the long time for the long term with long term funding with good ownership and probably come up together. I don't think Ealing can come up on their own. I don't think it's a good idea for them to come up. Well, I mean, maybe they could swap with Newcastle. I mean that. I mean, that could be Newcastle's ultimate goal. Is to, to, if they want to be sustainable, like they say they do, go go to the championship and be sustainable there. I mean, if, if that's what you, what, what you really want. And then there's also the prospect of Premiership 1 and Premiership 2, which I think is a horrendous idea, because who wants to watch the second tier of a closed league? I think the answer is nobody. So, you know, it's... it's a, rugby's at a crossroads. It needs to decide what it wants to be. I think the safest bet would be to continue with a closed league and invite clubs up as and when you believe that they are sustainable. How often do you think clubs would get invited up? Because you sort of saw over the sort of 15, 20 years of, of the sort of the salary cap since the salary cap came in, that there was sort of a, a big 13, I think I sort of talk about in my dissertation of Exeter broke in at one point, but otherwise it was the same 13 clubs from about 2005 to about 2018, roughly, the same 13 clubs, barring London Welsh for a season or two, and I think barring Leeds possibly for a season or two, the same 13 clubs that were in the Premiership the whole time. Yeah, so what happened there is those 13 clubs were able to sustain themselves in that manner because they had the original founding shares from Premiership Rugby. That's why it happened. So you always had one of the shareholders outside of the league, and when Exeter came up, they managed to buy the shares from Leeds, so that that was the that that was the story there. Um, it again is a difficult one because if you are in the Premiership, you deserve to have Premiership shares. Simple as that. If you founded the competition, and they didn't just found it from the goodness of their own heart, they founded it with the money from the owners. You know, if they, those owners bought those shares, they deserve to keep them. And they deserve to distribute them however they want. Uh, so again, it's not. I mean, people look at this as if it's like if it was some great scandal. Um, and it wasn't. It was people who invested their money into a, into a competition, and rightly so. They want a return from that. Now, from a purely competitive point of view, how would you do it? You'd definitely come up with a different structure. But it, it's what we had at the time, and you know, a lot of people spent a lot of money for that to be established. So, yeah. Uh, I mean, if you're going to operate a, a relegation and promotion model, you will need a different structure. To, to that because we did have this situation where you'd always have one member of the premiership cabal if you want in the in the championship and that always meant that they couldn't close the league it's only when they managed to get all of the shareholders into the league at the same time 
they managed to do anything constructive. So do you think that when they, or if and when they do eventually close the league, that it might actually help for in the short term until they can sort of start to expand and until clubs have the ability to to maintain premiership status? Yeah. Again, I, I even question if we want to expand it. I mean, the, the, I'm going on a, t- on a tangent here, but I think the most toxic phrase in rugby is grow the game because I don't know what this means to me. To many people, growing the game means something completely the opposite to what most rugby fans want. Most rugby fans want to see rugby and people want to grow the game, want to destroy rugby just so they can get more participation. Uh, so do we need to expand it? No, not really. Uh, I think if you've got 10 really good clubs and they are continuing to grow and expand their following, that is enough for me. Um, the argument counter to that would be we need more geographic spread. I mean, why do we not have a club in, say, East Anglia? Or, you know, why is there not more of a presence in the North? But, you know, uh, I think there is room for limited expansion, but it shouldn't be the be-all or end-all. The be-all or end-all should be getting more people to follow the existing clubs and the competition. I have zero links with Australia, but I could easily see myself getting into the NRL because it's such a good competition. And I think if you're looking at niche sports and how they market themselves and how they model their competition, Premiership could do a lot worse than looking at the NRL. On on that sort of point there, and then one last question, do you think that England do have the best form of the salary cap that sort of encourages competition and encourages viewership effectively? Or, or do you think that there's there's other, other competitions out there that, that might do it better from a salary cap point of view particularly? It's a really tough question because the evidence suggests from the amount of people watching rugby and the amount of people attending games, more importantly, is that it's not working. And again, it is tempting to draw the conclusion that that means the salary cap is not working. And I think the salary cap is working. And the reason attendances are down is because of other factors like lack of marketing, lack of awareness, lack of overall strategy. I mean, ranking competence would be the term I'd probably, that probably best fits the RFU and Premiership Rugby. Now, the fact that they've come up with these these salary cap rules I think it's as much by accident as anything else. So does it do a good job? I think accidentally they have stumbled upon a structure which works and promotes competition. But I would be very reticent to give the RFU or Premiership Rugby any credit for that. I think it's probably a complete accident. I think that's a, that's a great place to finish it. Then. Um, JB, thank you so much for, for joining on the podcast. No, thank you. And uh, thank you so much for your insight. No problem at all. Take care. Thank you all so much for listening and make sure you head over and follow us on social media. It's at pitchside underscore podcast on Instagram, Toby Reynolds 10 on TikTok and Toby underscore Reynolds 10 on Twitter. Head over to the Sports Gazette website to read articles from all of our pundits and writers here at the Sports Gazette. Make sure you like the podcast and give it a rating. It really helps. And make sure to join us next time on Pitchside. Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? 
Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.